Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sociology professor Danielle Lindemann has an exercise that she likes to do with her students at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. She asks them to make two lists. In column A, they're to write down as many current U.S. Supreme Court justices as they can name off the top of their heads. No looking at their phones or laptops. In column B, they're to do the same, but with Kardashians. Jenners can be included, too. And then we sort of take stock and we see how long the two lists are. And inevitably, for the vast majority of them, the Kardashian-Jenner list is longer than the Supreme Court justice list. Professor Lindemann isn't trying to throw the students under a bus or make them feel stupid. The purpose of the exercise, it's a silly exercise, right? But it's just to kind of show that this thing that we might see as kind of frivolous or unimportant or kind of a cultural sideshow is not really a cultural sideshow, right? It's on the center stage of our culture. And whether or not we watch these shows, we're still impacted by them. But in the early 90s, reality TV as we know it today wasn't yet on the center stage. In fact, it didn't even exist yet. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look at how one cable channel changed everything by putting cameras inside a New York loft with seven strangers. This is The Real World and the Rise of Reality TV. MTV's The Real World premiered 30 years ago in 1992, and it set the stage for everything from the Osbournes and the Hills to Survivor and the Kardashians, and just about everything you see on Bravo. But all of this was actually inspired by a type of reality television that aired 20 years before The Real World. In 1973, PBS aired a documentary series called An American Family, It followed an upper-middle-class family from Santa Barbara, California, over a seven-month period. Bill and Pat Loud and their five children weren't actors or public figures of any kind. They were just a regular family dealing with the tedium and turmoil of everyday life. Filmmaker Craig Gilbert was tired of seeing perfect sitcom families on television shows, like The Brady Bunch. He didn't believe they reflected real life. So he came up with the idea of using a real family to get a closer look at the actual issues that Americans were grappling with in the early 70s. Things like work ethics, gender roles, feminism, and the restructuring of the nuclear family. And Gilbert used an observational filming style, letting things unfold naturally. At the time, it was called a new kind of art form. Esteemed anthropologist Margaret Mead called an American family an innovation as significant as the invention of the novel. Viewers watched as Bill and Pat struggled through serious marriage troubles, including infidelity, which culminated with Pat asking Bill in front of the cameras to move out. The couple's oldest son, Lance, also came out as gay during the series, making him one of the first openly gay people on television. Viewers watched Lance have a heart-to-heart with his mom about the struggles he faced as a child coming to terms with his sexuality. I felt so frustrated at being, I don't know, there's always been something in me that I could never understand. Like, I couldn't ever judge anything that I did or thought. I couldn't judge it on the standards that that were given to me because um, 
I mean, they just didn't fit. It was like two different I know pieces that. of a puzzle. 10 million people tuned in for the 12-part series. And while some were shocked, many more appreciated seeing a real family on TV dealing with real issues. It made them feel less alone. But reviewers weren't kind to the Loud family. They criticized everything from the kids' long hair to the parents' tipsy cocktail parties. The family became symbols of the fraying social fabric of the country. And the Louds weren't happy with how they were received and blamed it on filmmaker Craig Gilbert. They accused him of being manipulative and staging events to make them look bad. Gilbert rebutted by saying the Louds saw all footage before it went to air and didn't complain until after it was received negatively. At the time, all the fuss scared away commercial TV networks. It was still an era when companies weren't keen about advertising on shows that challenged viewers or made them feel uncomfortable. And as a result, networks didn't rush to create their own copycat shows. So the reality TV seed planted by an American family would lay dormant for another 20 years until seven young strangers in a Soho loft brought it back to life. In 1991, TV producers Jonathan Murray and Mary Ellis Bunham pitched an idea to MTV. It was for a scripted series about a group of 20-somethings starting their lives in New York called St. Mark's Place. MTV was mainly a music video station at the time and turned down the scripted show, saying they didn't have the budget for a big TV production with actors, writers, directors, and sets. So Murray and Bunham went back to the drawing board. They were inspired by an American family, as well as the British Up documentary series by filmmaker Michael Apted, which followed the same group of kids for decades as they grew up and became adults. With those shows in mind, Murray and Bunham came up with the concept of documenting the lives of real people in New York City. At a breakfast meeting with MTV executive Lauren Correo, they pitched the idea of putting together people from different backgrounds, races, and sexual orientations and sticking them all together in a loft. They believed, because we grew up in silos with very little exposure to different types of people, this format was bound to cause conflict. And out of that conflict would come growth, and that growth would be their story arc. Bunham called it a voyage of discovery. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Murray said that Correo looked at them and went, oh my God, that's how I lived when I moved to New York. She really got it. She understood that this was an opportunity to make a show about the things that MTV viewers struggled with by putting those same viewers on the air. And if that wasn't enough, Murray and Bunham sealed the deal by promising it would be incredibly cheap to make. By noon that same day, MTV ordered a pilot. It was shot over Memorial Day weekend in 1991 and featured six people in a Soho loft. As they filmed the pilot, Murray and Bunham watched on little monitors in a back room, and they instantly knew that something special was happening. The organic conversations that took place between cast members was unprecedented on TV. It wasn't written by some older person who thought this is the way that young people sound like. It was real life. It was very fresh. It also looked differently than anything viewers were used to seeing. There were tons of jump cuts to get from one place to another and lots of current music taken right out of the MTV lineup. The results of the pilot were promising enough that MTV ordered a 13-episode season. But that pilot? It never aired. 
and none of the people featured in it were cast in season one, although one of them did go on to become famous in her own right. A few years after appearing on the pilot, Tracy Grandstaff became the voice of Daria on the beloved animated MTV series. Once Murray and Bunham got the green light for the show, they posted signs in laundromats and other places around New York looking for seven strangers with an interest in the arts. They also wanted to get someone from outside NYC, so they ran radio spots in Austin, Texas and Birmingham, Alabama, announcing the casting call. Julie Oliver Gentry, an aspiring dancer from Birmingham who was just shy of her 19th birthday, was one of those who answered the call. She recently told the Los Angeles Times her motivation to try out was simple. She said, somebody's going to pay to move me to New York? I get three months of free rent? Well, this is really working out. At her audition, Julie pitched herself as a different kind of Southerner than people were used to seeing on TV. She then went on to demonstrate her clogging skills. Whether it was the dancing that nailed things for Julie, who knows? What we do know is she was the first cast member picked for season one. She was also the youngest and the only one new to the city. Producer Jonathan Murray says he saw her as the stand-in for all those who were watching the show from all over the country. Joining Julie in a spacious loft at 565 Broadway in Soho were six other roommates, four guys, two girls. 24-year-old Becky Blasband, a waitress and aspiring musician. Andre Como, a 23-year-old long-haired guitarist and singer in an indie rock band. 20-year-old Heather B. Gardner, a hip-hop artist from New Jersey. Norman Corpy, a 25-year-old artist whose sexuality became a focus of attention in season one. 20-year-old Eric Neese, an aspiring actor and model. And Kevin Powell, a 26-year-old writer and poet. For three months in the winter and spring of 1992, they lived together in front of cameras in a 4,000-square-foot loft, rent-free and with $350 a week for groceries. Though you might be surprised to learn that the cast was paid very little for taking part in this monumental series, just $2,600 each for the entire season, a far cry from the hundreds of thousands of dollars earned by some reality stars today. But back then, no one knew this show was about to change television and pop culture forever. The first episode aired on May 21st, 1992. Its iconic opening promised viewers something new and exciting. This is the true story. True story. Seven strangers (laughs) picked to live in a loft and have their lives taped to find out what happens <laughs> what? when people stop being polite. Could you get the phone? And start getting real. The real world. The episode followed Julie getting ready and traveling to New York City from Alabama, where she lived with her overbearing parents who worried about her move to the Big Apple. Within minutes, she arrives at the Soho loft with its glass tables, spiral staircase, massive fish tank, and pool table. Then she meets her fellow roommates, and as they sit around the dining room table getting to know each other, Heather's beeper goes off, and Julie says something that she regrets to this day. What is that? It's a beeper. Wow. Do you sell drugs? Why do you have a beeper? <laughs> Julie, a white southerner, maintains that the comment was a poor attempt at humor. She never really thought Heather, the black rapper from New Jersey, was a drug dealer. 
but it set the stage for a story arc about race and racism that evolved and came to a head when Julie and Kevin, the only other Black cast member, got into a heated argument on the sidewalk outside their building. You hear what you want to hear. And how are you going to say get off the black-white thing when that's the reality? Racism is everywhere. Right. That's my point. That's my point. What happened to Alabama? Because of people like yeah, you, Kevin! This argument was so real and spontaneous that camera crews almost missed it. Because they were dealing with 90s technology, anytime the crew wanted to film outside the building, they had to unhook the camera and put on a remote control pack, a process that took about 10 minutes. So it was common for the crew to ask castmates to pause conversations while they got things set up. When Julie and Kevin went at it in front of the building, there was no way they were going to wait. So to capture the scene, the crew was forced to throw camera cables out of a window and rehook the camera as quickly as possible. Filming reality TV in the 90s was uncharted territory, and producers soon found out they were severely understaffed. Jonathan Murray says they had this crazy idea that the roommates would all get up at the same time in the morning and go to sleep at the same time at night. But they soon found themselves shooting almost 24 hours a day. He has said, we were just so in over our head, it was almost like a death march in terms of the crew trying to get through those 13 weeks and to cover everything. Plus, the loft got incredibly hot during filming, over 90 degrees at times because of all the lights. And there were cables and cords everywhere, so people were constantly tripping. It was a real learning curve for everyone involved. In fact, the crew even asked cast members to let them know how they could improve things. And early on, roommate Norman Corpy came up with an idea that has become a mainstay in reality TV. He suggested to producers that cast members should have a private space where they could air their grievances and share their thoughts directly to camera. So a room was created where cast members would reveal their inner monologue about fellow housemates and the experience in general, adding another layer to the show. In this way, the real world, with help from Norman Corpy, invented the first-person confessional used in nearly every reality show today. As we mentioned earlier, The Real World premiered in May 1992, and it was an instant smash hit for MTV. Ratings were triple what the network was normally getting in prime time, and it was one of the most talked-about new shows of the year breaking boundaries and carving out a new space for young people on television. Cast members became overnight celebrities, and they were treated like rock stars when they attended the VMA Awards in September 1992. Keep in mind, that was the year Nirvana, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Howard Stern as Fartman all appeared at the awards show. And fans cheered just as wildly for the seven real-world roommates. But I guess it shouldn't come as any surprise that many older TV reviewers weren't fans of the show. I mean, the series wasn't really for them, was it? The Washington Post called the real world excruciating torture and head-emptying drivel. The Post and other reviewers were baffled at all the hype about the show, pointing out that not much really happened on each episode. Most of the time, it was just a bunch of young people sitting around talking, blowing smoke rings, and occasionally arguing over who gets to use the phone or who ate someone's food. When conflict did happen, critics accused producers of scripting the whole thing. Murray and Bunham always denied the accusations, but like reality TV producers of today, they did help certain storylines along. 
For example, they left out a provocative book that included nude photos of roommate and aspiring model Eric Nice in a place where the whole cast would find it. They were hoping it would spark a love connection with another roommate. Despite some flirting here and there, the only love connection happened when the girls went on a trip to Jamaica, and Becky hooked up with a crew member who ended up being removed from the show. Mary Ellis Bunham, who passed away in 2004, often referred to the real world in its early days as a social experiment. That term has been used since then to describe other reality TV shows, including the recent phenomenon Love is Blind. But for the real world, it actually was true, at least the first couple of seasons. They were pretty low-key and surprisingly authentic. No one was using the series to build a brand. But all of that would soon change. Following season one, the real-world producers broke the mold again. Instead of bringing back the same cast, which is what everyone expected, they moved on to a new cast and a new location. And that became the formula for the show for the next 33 seasons. The seven roommates in the real-world Los Angeles lived in a $2 million house in Venice Beach, equipped with a rooftop garden, pool table, and hot tub. It wasn't very much like most people's real world, but it was certainly fun to imagine living in that 7,000-square-foot beach house. And that's a pretty common reason why people gravitate to reality shows. It's fun to imagine yourself in the situations you see on TV. Professor Danielle Lindemann, who you heard from at the beginning of this episode, says people also watch reality TV for another reason, voyeuristic pleasure. You want to watch the train wreck because you know you're nowhere near it. Um, And that kind of maybe even gives you a sense of superiority to be kind of looking at other people's kind of zany worlds. Conflict arose in season two when cast member David pulled a blanket off Tammy, who was in her bra and underwear, despite repeated requests to stop. David claimed it was all in fun, but he was removed from the show anyway. And I should mention, you might know Tammy from another show. She went on to become the breakout star of VH1's Basketball Wives after marrying NBA player Kenny Anderson. Despite the drama and heated arguments, Professor Lindemann says early seasons of The Real World were actually pretty tame. Yes, there was conflict, but it's kind of interesting. It was very kind of subtle, more nuanced conflict, sort of based on where these different people were coming from socially rather than conflict like the kind of brawls that we sometimes see on reality TV today. In the 90s, the real world offered something important. It taught a whole generation of viewers things about people that they might not necessarily be exposed to in their everyday life. I mean, I think I can speak for myself and say that I learned something from watching the real world. Just, you know, growing up as a teenager, um, I hadn't seen things like race and gender and sexuality talked about, dealt with it in that particular way on television more broadly um, before the real world came along. The real world helped start conversations about issues that were previously ignored or considered taboo on television. And that was most evident in the show's third season in 1994. The real-world San Francisco famously cast Pedro Zamora, who was openly gay and HIV-positive. HIV-AIDS was a huge health issue at the time, and there was still a large amount of stigma surrounding the virus. And AZT, the only available treatment, didn't work for everyone. 
Producer Jonathan Murray believed it was important to cast someone with HIV on the show and had actually already started doing outreach in San Francisco when he got a letter out of the blue from Zamora. The 22-year-old Cuban-American arrived in Miami in 1980 as part of something known as the Mariel Boat Lift, a mass emigration of Cubans who traveled from Mariel Harbor to the U.S. over a six-month period. Pedro wrote in his letter that after coming to the U.S., his mom died when he was in high school, and he had only just begun to explore his sexuality when he found out at a school blood donor clinic that he had contracted HIV. After the diagnosis, he became an AIDS educator, speaking to young people at schools about the importance of safe sex, and he also campaigned for better treatments. Murray and Bunham looked at a few photos of the good-looking young man and knew almost instantly that he would be the center of season three. His inclusion on the real world San Francisco was groundbreaking. It wasn't just that it showed a gay man on TV. It was that it showed his multidimensionality. But he wasn't just a gay man. He was a friend. He was a roommate. He was, you know, in a committed relationship. He had a commitment ceremony with his partner Right on the show, which, you know, maybe doesn't sound that wild today, but in, you know, 1994, right, that was pretty revolutionary. Pedro used the platform to educate and dispel the stigmas associated with being HIV positive and queer. But sadly, Pedro's health began to decline during taping. And just hours after the finale of The Real World San Francisco aired on November 11th, 1994, he died from complications from AIDS. Pedro Zamora was 22 years old. Fans of the show and many others who didn't even watch The Real World were deeply saddened by his passing, including U.S. President Bill Clinton. In a statement, Clinton said, In his short life, Pedro educated and enlightened our nation. He taught all of us that AIDS is a disease with a human face and one that affects every American, indeed every citizen of the world and he taught people living with AIDS how to fight for their rights and live with dignity. By the mid-90s, the real world permeated pop culture. It was parodied on comedy sketch shows and referenced frequently in films, TV, and music videos. You might remember the hilarious skit on Saturday Night Live in 1996, when Bob Dole, played by Norm MacDonald, gets thrown out of the house in the real world Chicago. Nobody eats Bob Dole's peanut butter without asking. Whatever. Bob needed to work on his people skills. If you want to chip in, that's a different story. Otherwise, you keep your grubby hands out of Bob Dole's peanut butter. So I called a house meeting. In 1995, the characters on Beverly Hills 90210 filmed their own real world knockoff, and Matthew Lillard played a self-centered former real-world cast member in 1999's She's All That. Meanwhile, MTV, of course, wanted to cash in on all the success of the show. And with Murray and Bunham, they launched a spin-off called Road Rules. It featured young adults living together in an RV, moving from one place to another, collecting clues and completing missions along the way. Producers got the idea in season two when Tammy, John, and Dominic traveled across the country in an RV to arrive at their new home in Los Angeles. Road Rules premiered in 1995 and aired until 2007. Along the way, it helped to solidify reality show personas and archetypes that are still popular today. Professor Lindemann explains that producers use archetypes for a reason. But if you're watching the early episodes of The Real World, right? 
or the first season of The Real World, there's probably someone, someone in that cast that you can kind of grab onto and say, yeah, I'm a little naive like Julie is, or I've experienced racism too like Kevin has, right? So one of the sort of handles that we grab with reality TV is these archetypes, and that's one of the things that keeps us watching. But Lindemann says casting certain archetypes time and time again can also be harmful perpetuating damaging stereotypes and cultural rifts, especially when it comes to marginalized groups. In her book, True Story, What Reality Television Says About Us, Lindemann refers to the sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, who says these stereotypical portrayals normalize the power structure, and they allow us to believe things like racism and sexism are natural and inevitable. The success of The Real World and its spin-off Road Rules, which eventually morphed into a competition show, gave producers the idea for another show called The Challenge. It premiered in 1998 and is still being produced today, 37 seasons later. MTV successfully created a reality TV ecosystem where cast members would begin in The Real World and then move to the competition show where they would return season after season. And fun fact, the current champion on the challenge, Chris C.T. Tamborello, made his first appearance on MTV in the real world Paris back in 2003. He's since been a star of the network and the highest earning challenge champ, winning a total of over $1.3 million. A huge difference from the humble beginnings of the first few seasons of the real world. The challenge has also been the blueprint for other reality competition shows like Survivor and The Amazing Race. MTV has created more than just spinoffs. In 2002, they spoofed themselves when they released the real-world movie, The Lost Season. It was a made-for-TV movie, but was completely made up. It was a parody set in Vancouver about a rejected cast member who kidnaps and terrorizes the show's seven roommates. By then, reality TV had already exploded into the mainstream, with the arrival of Survivor in the year 2000, marking the beginning of reality TV 2.0, an era that has turned reality stars into A-list celebrities like Paris Hilton, the Kardashians, and of course Donald Trump. Critics of reality TV 2.0 often point out that it's, in fact, not very real. Situations are contrived for maximum drama. But Professor Lindemann points out that nothing we watch on TV is 100% real. Even the news, I'm not even talking about fake news, right? News, right? It's people are choosing which stories to tell, right? And how to tell them. So obviously it's not fully quote unquote real. It's not a pure mirror of reality. But that doesn't mean that it can't tell us anything about ourselves. I think it can tell us a great deal about ourselves. A 2017 study found that a fifth of all primetime TV programs in the U.S. were reality shows, second only to drama. And their influence on wider culture is undeniable. New York Times TV critic James Ponowazic has said reality TV is part of the atmosphere. It's an entertainment genre and lifestyle, a career path and political philosophy. I mean, even people who don't watch reality TV, they learn about reality TV through, you know, even, you know, regular news media at this point. So like my husband who doesn't watch reality TV will always, you know, send me articles that he finds from like the Washington Post about, you know, the housewives or the Duggars or whatever is happening that week. 
So regardless of whether you tune in consciously, it finds you in the cultural ether. And Lindemann says that's why we shouldn't ignore reality TV. It may not be your cup of tea, but its influence on society as a whole is huge. And sometimes it can shine a light on things that need fixing. I call it the fun house mirror. It really forces us, when you start to kind of like dig into reality TV, you see all these kind of stereotypes, all of our cultural foibles just amplified that really allows us to begin to see, well, what are the things that we might want to change about ourselves? The 32nd season of The Real World aired on MTV in 2017. It was the last season to run on the cable channel. The show is now on Paramount+. And that's where you can also find The Real World Homecoming, a reunion show which has so far brought back together the cast from seasons one and two. In January 2021, The Real World Homecoming New York reunited the now middle-aged roommates in the same Soho loft where they met and lived together 29 years earlier. Everyone was there except Eric, who in a true sign of the changing times, participated virtually after testing positive for COVID. Eric, incidentally, was the only one from season one who parlayed his appearance on the show into a career opportunity. Following the real world, he hosted The Grind, MTV's dance music show, which aired from 1992 to 97. But Eric revealed on the reunion show that he is now a health and wellness facilitator. As for the other cast members who gathered in the loft for the real world homecoming, there was lots of hugging and crying as they reminisced about a simpler time before smartphones and social media. Back to a time when reality TV was still just a social experiment instead of a way of life. Thanks for listening to this look back at the rise of reality TV in the 90s. And thanks to Professor Danielle Lindemann for joining me. Her book is called True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. I'll include information about it in the show notes. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and audio production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 